You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We'd like to thank our friends at Movement Watches for the continued support of SpyCast. I'll tell you more about this great company later, but first, let's meet our guests. We're joined today by Jack McCain, who is a U.S. naval officer and helicopter pilot, and is deployed to the Persian Gulf, Guam, the Western Pacific, and many other locations. He's been an instructor at the United States Naval Academy, teaching naval leadership, a college course encompassing self-leadership and organizational dynamics, preparing future leaders for the Navy and Marine Corps. He also instructed Naval Leadership Traditions Retrospective, a self-developed experimental elective combining the study of leadership science as viewed through the U.S. Navy history, 1776 to 2016. That's not a short time period. He is the author of the new book, Angola, Clausewitz, and the American Way of War. Welcome, Jack. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here on SpyCast. I'm incredibly happy to be here, and uh, I come to the Spy Museum as often as I can, so really it's a pleasure to be kind of up in the working spaces here. This is the, the kind of the unsexy side yeah. of the Spy Museum, <laughs> Memphis notwithstanding. This is where all the, the sausage is made. So I, I, what's interesting about this is, you know, for my field, which is U.S. Soviet foreign policy, you know, I've read hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books on this. There may have been one or two that mentioned what happened in Angola in the 1960s and 70s. And for most people, it's this kind of random war wedged in between Vietnam and then the Soviets stealing in Afghanistan in the 1980s. Why have we seen so little on it historically? I mean, there, there are reasons for it. But really, all you're seeing are, are soldiers' memoirs, which really gives one side of the story not very objective, and certainly not critical, like we, we want from a historian perspective. So why are you one of the first ones to tackle this subject? Um, so I will say that I had to put a significant amount of thought into whether or not I was going to tackle this particular piece, because it is a very fraught one. We are dealing with uh, the communism, anti-communism dynamic, which in itself is difficult to, to pair, especially when you're in a place like on the continent of Africa, um, sub-Saharan Africa. But uh, there are political ideologies that are pretty repugnant, um, more than pretty repugnant, are entirely repugnant, um, most notably that of apartheid, which makes an objective analysis very difficult. Um, but the more I read into this and the more I tried to relate 
the situation in Angola to um, that of ours in our 21st century wars, um, the more parallels I saw and the more I, I thought, like any good um, military, I can't call myself a historian because I'm not, but a, at least uh, I feel like I try to read some history, uh, that it was imperative to at least try to get some sort of analysis to draw parallels for um, our purposes and to try to make some meaning of it. Because if you look at a conflict like this, it wasn't simply, we look at Vietnam as a very counterinsurgency-centric war. Um, there were elements of counterinsurgency, counterrevolution, uh, conventional war, air war, um, all sorts of these types of war, which I'll break down a little mm. later, going on at once. Um, and the South Africans did not have the same problems with it that we did. We tried to pin it down with a single phrase and then... Um, go from there, such as we did in Vietnam, and we seem to find ourselves doing now. Right. Well, one of the interesting things is, is I'm reading this and thinking, man, the South Africans kind of have the, you know, really figured this thing out. They kind of have their shit together. You know, politically, they know what they're, oh, wait, wait, this is the same, I won't use the word, yeah, well, the same assholes that had this system of apartheid. <laughs> so I'm admiring them, and then I stop and go, whoa, wait, these are not good people. And you know, and, and if you want to treat it objectively, you got to take that step back and not realize and not even think about that. But it's almost like people taking an objective, I'm not comparing the South Africans to the Nazis, <laughs> because it didn't take us what, like three minutes to get to the Nazis here, but how do you do objectivity about German politics in the 1940s? It's very hard to be objective. It is, and um, I, I find Rommel is a pretty good comparison for this because I find a lot of admiration for Rommel in the U.S. military for, for all sorts of reasons. Um, he was an excellent uh, warrior in the sense that he was great at uh, fighting tanks. However, at the end of the day, he still fought for the Nazi state. Um, so I can admire his abilities and then separate myself from admiring him as a person because maybe he's a good person, maybe he was not a good person, but at the end of the day, he was a Nazi, right. which in my mind... Paints him as not a good person. Um, I, I think that's not going too far out on a limb. I think you're going to find a lot of people who are agreeing with you. Well, let's let's not assume anybody knows anything. And so let, let's kind of take a step back uh, and look at this this war because it's almost a shame that it hasn't been looked at. Because as you explain in the book, and, and as seems to be completely the case, this war really the fate of all Southern Africa kind of depended on the outcome of this war. It wasn't just a bunch of Cubans in Angola or South Africa. It's basically every country in the southern chunk of Africa that was on the line here. Yeah, if, if you look at the strategic situation of the South Africans through the early 1960s and on into the mid-70s and even later, um, it would be akin to Mexico and Canada becoming hostile states to the U.S. Every single neighbor was at least, if not an abject... Uh, Marxist-Leninist state were well on their way to being as such. Um, I did not include battles in Mozambique in my book, but that was another component of this whole border war, as well as uh, national liberation at home inside South Africa, which included bombings right. and uh, shootings and several other kind of baseline terrorist attacks. So um, they had a, a real ugly strategic picture. And the way they went about tackling that strategic picture is, is pretty important um, to, to analyze because they were very objective, very, very forward-thinking, and came up with solutions that were, uh, I have a, a love-hate relationship with the word innovation, but for lack of a better word, mm -hmm. they, were, they were innovative. Um, 
So Southern Africa was looking very red uh, in the 60s and 70s. They were very encouraged by the Soviet Union and China at different times um, because they saw an opportunity to basically inherit an entire continent because after the Vietnam experience in the United, with the United States, we had no stomach for a right. war um, that smelled anything like counterinsurgency. And you saw that reaction later on in the Weinberger Doctrine where it basically said, we shall not do this ever again. Um, so um, at the end of the day, uh, I think that uh, based on that strategic picture and the way they made their decisions, it's, it's worth looking at um, in itself. And that actually started relatively small. I mean, it was a, in 66 in a Namibian independence movement, kind of where you wouldn't even think twice about, oh, you know, it's a neighboring state. It's got an independence movement. There's this organization called SWAPO uh, that's causing some trouble. It started very small, but it built into something pretty extraordinary after that. Yes, it did. Um, so it really started out as a, a low-level insurgency. Um, they had a quasi-Marxist-Leninist ideology, as many other organizations did. Um, and there were several groups that sort of materialized into SWAPO. And what SWAPO was was the Southwest African People's Organization, who took kind of the mantle of the insurgent, not the professionalized soldier, um, on the Namibian-Angolan border, trying to uh, cause as much chaos as possible in order to destabilize Namibia, which was then known as Southwest Africa and was a de facto colony um, or territory of South Africa. Um, so yes, it did start very small, but as the war went on and interest and the Cold War uh, intrigue got involved, uh, you ended up with between 1974 and 1989, 350,000 Cuban troops. Uh, as well as the most high-tech weaponry that both Cuba and Russia could provide. Well, that's what's crazy about this. Is like A lot of people don't pay attention to this, but we're talking about all the state-of-the-art Russian equipment from air defense missiles to aircraft to tanks. You know, everything that the, the Soviets had to offer was sent down to fight this war. Um, what's amazing to me is why in the world the United States wasn't down there just taking notes on everything. I mean, this seems... Like served on a silver platter for military intelligence, for military attaches to just be looking and seeing, oh, well, that was pretty easy to kill, or that's really hard to kill unless you shoot in a certain place. I mean, just to kind of shift, the, there's a battle we'll talk about later. It's a big tank battle, but essentially pitted top-of-the-line Soviet equipment against top-of-the-line British equipment, a version of the Challenger tank mm -hmm. that should have been a preview of Desert Storm. It really should have told us a whole lot more about what we were going to face in a decade later than it actually did. Yeah, um, so there are a couple of explanations for this, and the U.S. was not disinvolved. Um, we had a covert action program going on inside Angola, but it waxed and waned in how much we wanted to commit to it, both because of Vietnam and especially under President Carter, there was very little stomach for working inside Angola um, because it was a war of national liberation and South Africa was an apartheid state. Mm -hmm. So that was a calculation um, we made uh, both at the political level and the strategic level. Now, we did pay attention to what was happening because uh, we had an interest in what happened. Reagan had no desire to see Angola become a Marxist-Leninist state, but his political calculus was more covert action is about as far as we're going to go, and then we'll see if we can pressure diplomatically to bring the conflict to a resolution. But yeah, you had um, obviously the, the Soviet high-tech uh, stuff, but what was so interesting is 
South Africa had been under embargo since the mid-1970s. So their weapon systems were designed to specifically suit their needs and were constantly refined. They didn't have a huge number of them like the U.S., but they were designed just for fighting in Southern Africa and fighting Soviet weaponry. And they were adapted in in kind of, this doesn't work great, let's try something else. And they're building stuff from scratch. A lot of... We'll get to this down the road, but a lot of what you saw when we went to Afghanistan and then Iraq, I saw you just write MRAP down because exactly the kind of thing I'm thinking about where it's, ooh, maybe this doesn't work. Let's build a purpose-built vehicle to deal with the situation on the ground. And what's what's funny about that is the MRAP is basically I, – I don't know the acquisitions process of how the MRAP was specifically designed. But if you take a side-by-side picture of the MRAP and the South African version, the Cospir, which was designed between about 1974 and 1977, they are physically identical. The V-shape, the blowing the wheels off, um, the type of – uh, equipment inside, the way things were stored, all came directly from the South African experience of this problem of improvised explosive devices. Um, a lot of them, especially, they were having trouble with stacked anti-tank mines that would annihilate um, whatever flat-bottomed uh, vehicles they were using. So it really forced them to think about what is war like when you don't have freedom of movement and how do you keep your troops alive uh, under extreme improvised explosive device threat. Let me ask you about the South Africans themselves, because the, the Afrikaners, they're, again, taking the assholeness of their <laughs> apartheid out of this. It's interesting, kind of the background. You know, we talk in the United States about whatever martial traditions that we have. Some of it comes from the British, other this comes from, you know what, we studied the German army in World War II, and that's where a lot of the current U.S. Army doctrine comes from. But the South Africans look to their British past, but also their Dutch past, this kind of Boer, you know, idea of fighting against this massive empire, the British, during the Boer Wars. And then they didn't win, but they held on for a long time. So I, I think that it is, uh, it is incorrect to try to separate a culture from their military society. And that's why I try to rope um, Afrikaner culture into the way I viewed the Afrikaners fighting their war. And um, apartheid aside, we have a significant amount to learn from the Afrikaners in the way they view and fight war, because since the Dutch arrived uh, in Southern Africa, at that point they were, they called themselves the war truckers, um, they met resistance from local groups, they met extreme resistance from the British, and they were both other groups at different times either attempted to throw them into the sea or to subjugate them entirely, and they resisted this. They almost always fought outmanned and outgunned, which is an important point to understand, as they did in Angola, but they had a tradition that came out of this of fast cavalry with highly accurate and voluminous uh, firepower. And this really shaped the way they went from basically a horse uh, cavalry through to this fast uh, armored fighting vehicle, the Rattle, which uh, means honey badger in Afrikaans, and use that cultural heritage to really, uh, or leverage that cultural heritage to uh, fight effectively outnumbered, outgunned, outmaneuvered, uh, not outmaneuvered, excuse me, outnumbered and outgunned, but uh, were highly effective at doing so. So this notes, there's an important, uh, whoever you're fighting or whether it's, self-examination 
trying to understand what culture makes your military up and how that affects what you do is, uh, to me, very important. Well, one thing they were also limited, the military couldn't do whatever they wanted to. They, they were severely limited in their use of force because of the international situation, because if they, you know, in the United States, we, we have civilian casualties, you know, there, there are problems we face, but we're not already, you know, completely underwater because of the way the world views us because of the apartheid system. So they couldn't afford any mistakes. They couldn't be too over the top in their military use. They, they basically were fighting with one arm tied behind their back and the other one severely limited in their in its scope. I, and they, they still were able to kind of do, I would say despite this, but also because of this, they understood this and took it into account in the way they fought the war. Yeah, I, I put down that um, while the South Africans thought about the war, they really came up with three main strategic objectives. Uh, the first one was to keep Namibia from becoming a hostile Marxist-Leninist state. Uh, that was their primary goal. They could not afford to have a hostile state that would allow internal groups, at the time the ANC, to continue to conduct attacks or to have safe haven. Um, the second one was to main po maintain political support um, at home always and sometimes abroad. I say that because at different times during the war, this was 1966 to 1989 or 1990, depending on how you look at it, um, some politicians really cared about how the international system viewed them because of the threat of an embargo uh, or to maintain legitimacy for the South African state. And at other times, politicians, especially P.W. Bota, who was, uh, Pick Bota was the uh, prime minister, he started to not really care. After the effects of the embargo really started to hurt the South African economy, it became less risky for him to make more overt actions. And you see that uh, materialized in uh, Operation Modular near the end of the war, which we'll talk about, uh, where this was a conventional mechanized infantry force sent deep into Angola in violation of every international agreement. Um, so I, I say sometimes maintain uh, political support uh, abroad. And then finally, to limit the insurgency and allow for a political process to take place both in Angola, hopefully, and most importantly, inside Namibia. Well, and this was, you know, even organizations like SWAPO, I think one of the most brilliant things they did was to say, let's let them be a political party. Let's not, you know, let's not ban them and let them build strength because we ban them. Let's let's kind of put a little bit of faith in the political process and, and hope that the people will not decide to go with them. Yeah, this was, um, I break the war into two phases, pre-1977 and post-1977. Um, it's not a hard and fast date. But it is a seismic shift in the way they viewed the strategic situation in Namibia. And after 1977, the South Africans did some very interesting things to keep Namibia's support and to undermine SWAPO. And one of them was to get rid of apartheid inside Namibia, which if you imagine to a South African looking now at a territory state and seeing, well, they have freedom, why can't we? Right. That is a, a pretty profound move. Um, but second, yeah, they legitimized SWAPO as a political party. And at first reading this, I was sort of shocked. But at the end of the day, it was a pretty brilliant, it was a, a gamble, but it was a pretty brilliant gamble because um, now you have to have a party that needs to take part in the political process. And by doing so, if they start to ramp up attacks, that can undermine their political credibility, uh, as well as giving opposition groups 
inside the country a target that is a political one and not just a military one. Right. And it somewhat co-ops the message, too, of, you know, they're there's this horrible central government that's repressing our rights. Now, go ahead. Yeah, yeah I, do do your best. Exactly. It changes the narrative. And I don't think that SWAPO asked. I, I'm sure they had, had said we need political legitimacy. But at the time the decision made, I doubt SWAPO was on board. It was more convenient for them to be more of a an insurgent group because um, now they have to take responsibility for their actions. Well, I think that was one thing, the inter- interesting thing that the South Africans did is that they, they started to see the war in its totality and not as bits and pieces. I mean, this is where the word CLOSFITS is in the title of your book because you're looking at a war. It's very easy in the United States, and this is, I'm not, I'm not the, I'm the thousandth, millionth person to make this argument, that like one and a half percent of our population is fighting the wars that we're currently fighting and the rest of us are going shopping and doing our normal day-to-day lives without paying a lot of attention to it. You would think the U.S. government is paying attention to this as a total picture, whether it's economics or resource management or other things like that. But let's let's be honest, the problem, not a lot of them are. But the South Africans kind of had to. They didn't have much of a choice in the matter. They couldn't. They didn't have the luxury of letting one and a half percent of their population go and fight and not pay attention to it. The, well, they had a system of national service, so uh, much like the draft, where you would uh, it was compulsory for you to join the military. Uh, with very little exception. You would serve for two years, and then until uh, a late age, I believe it was 40 or 45, um, you were required to do national service um, every couple of years. And that would generally involve a stint on the border, and then, um, or training period, a stint on the border, and then time back home. Uh, so it was keenly felt by the population, the, the effects of the war, both positive and negative. And this became um, a real... I hate to use the term center of gravity because I'm sure somebody will dispute whether or not the home population was a center of gravity, but the political legitimacy of the war and limiting of casualties was an overbearing concern for the political and military leaders in South Africa. And they came up with a whole bunch of solutions to to fix this problem, um, which I'm sure we'll go into. But uh, at the end of the day, um, the war was keenly felt at home because... Uh, there were also terrorist attacks inside the nation, uh, the nation, as we see happens to us at home, and it kind of will momentarily refocus right. uh, us. But um, there was more of a personal connection, and the population is also much smaller. The The Boer population was not a majority and um, was nowhere near the size of the United States. One thing I thought was really interesting in this, we'll get to this as far as talking about types of wars and types of operations, is the South Africans had no issue with that. They, they operated multiple types at the same time, from running counterinsurgency operations to conventional war and switching back and forth almost instantaneously. And then I, I, I'm using the word hybrid, but I'm being very careful that word. I'm not defining it in the same way that many of that there are hybrid war. No, I'm a, a mixture of multiple types. I mean, the, the, the dictionary definition of a, you know a hybrid concept where all these were happening simultaneously. It wasn't like where, okay, now we're doing a counterinsurgency strategy, which we'll talk about that terminology a little bit later, or now we're doing, it's a conventional war all of a sudden. I mean, Vietnam's a good example of this, right? You can actually trace how the war evolved, where we went from one type of fighting to another type of fighting. The Easter Offensive in 72 was tanks versus tanks, and all of a sudden it's a conventional war. That's not what's going on here. All this stuff is happening simultaneously. It is, and I think um, if I were... uh, in charge of the military for a day. I would take any book that gives a type of war and throw it out. 
Because when we try to, I try to make this point in the book, when we attempt to parcel warfare into a type, some would say that it's useful to at least begin thinking about a war having some specific characteristics. But I refer to Clausewitz, and to paraphrase one of his quotes, is that one of the biggest mistakes you can make as a general or as a political leader is to try to make the war you are fighting something alien to its nature or um, underestimate or misestimate what quote, type of war you were fighting. So the type model has very little utility except to inform an operational concept, maybe. But when it comes to the strategic level of warfare, uh, trying to parcel a war into a type or label it a type becomes folly because it really starts to limit the way you can think about war. Um, so that's one of my overarching takeaways. I don't want to give, give the secrets away before we do later. But... Um, that, that type really, now every time I hear it after writing the book, somebody will say, we're fighting this type of war. It just kills me. Um, so that model, I try to, to give a little bit of a different way of thinking about how we think about war. This is, it's likely, just we'll get to this now, it's likely the, the insurgents, ISIS, the Taliban, whomever, they're not thinking, what type of war are we fighting today? And, 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 you know, anyway, we'll, we'll get to that in a second. So I, let's talk about the counterinsurgency side, because this is something that a lot of people who are listening will know a little bit about. You know, a lot of a lot of our listeners are, are uh, had served in Iraq and Afghanistan or both, um, maybe even some of them in Vietnam. So the coin ideas uh, will be familiar to them. Uh, you're going to have to help me with pronunciation. of Is it the Covet, the Covoit, the so Kofut, Kofut, uh, these damn Dutch. Um, <laughs> Which is a unit that was designed, literally it translates to what? Crowbar. Uh, the, the word, the intent was to pry, just like a crowbar, the insurgents away from the population. Uh, not to dry up the sea that they swum in, they had read lots of Mao, but uh, a, a very uh, enemy-centric counterinsurgency model uh, through Kofut. But not by military, right? These are, these are not military men. Yeah, so the way, as I said earlier, the way the South Africans got around taking um, casualties, military casualties, was very inventive. And this Kofut unit was made up of um, volunteer South African police officers uh, who were looked at for their, obviously their war fighting capability, but also their investigative skill. They put a very strong emphasis on um, the ability to investigate crimes because they looked at this terrorism counterinsurgency thing as criminal activity, which was a pretty interesting way of, of looking at it. Um, they had... But not completely... I mean, just to, sorry to interrupt you. I mean, but we think of it now because it's kind of so ingrained in our culture that counterterrorism is a military operation. But even in the United States, it hadn't been considered one until pretty much right around 9-11. I mean, going back and... I mean, the reason you get like a Delta Force, the reason you get some of these... And they come the end of the 70s, right, is, is terrorism, counterterrorism, counterinsurgency, a lot of it had been thought of as a law enforcement or a police act. Sorry, go ahead. No, um, and, and that brings up some pretty impl uh, interesting implications we can either address or not address later, that uh, what's more effective in counterinsurgency? Is it somebody that you see every day, a policeman, or is it somebody wearing body armor with right. a rifle? Uh, and this, this lesson has been learned by us, the British, uh, the South Africans, so... Um, anyway, to, to go back to Kofut, uh, police officers and volunteer uh, black, both trackers and um, just general trigger pullers, 
some of whom, many of whom, had been former insurgents themselves. They saw the unit, either they were arrested um, or captured, and they said, hey, come work for us, which gave some pretty uh, expansive expertise as to operations and, and how SWAPO did business. So they would convoy up uh, two weeks on, two weeks off, and would drive these uh, armor-protected vehicles, MRAPs basically, known as a Cospeer, uh, in four vehicles. And uh, their, the idea was to have maximum firepower, so you had upwards of 20-millimeter uh, cannons, 50 cals, and then everyone with a rifle would be firing at once at, at points. But they would use trackers to find um, signs of insurgents and then would basically run them down, which is interesting because it's the same technique the South Africans used to hunt uh, on horseback or on foot. They would use a tracker ahead of them to help guide them to where the animals were and then run them down. So this was very culturally familiar um, to the South Africans. It was just a diff slightly different application. Now, they use a bounty system, which was open for abuse, put it that way. Kofoot right. is still notorious because they were very a very, very violent unit. They were very effective. Um, they became feared in the border area because... Uh, they interrupted any insurgent ability to maneuver or even just take a deep breath. Uh, so they were highly effective, but um, there were various, uh, because the war is so highly propagandized, it's really hard to find truth. Right. But um, there were accusations of war crimes, human rights abuses, operating on a bounty system. Obviously, it became... Um, became advantageous to come back with bodies and weapons. Right. Well, there's a shady kind of limitation to going across borders also that it had to be in hot pursuit. You know, I can't, can't stop thinking of the Deuce of Hazard hot pursuit. <laughs> they had to have a very, very strong lead to cross a border, and they kind of fibbed they, their, their, their strong leads a little bit. They did. Yeah. Uh, no, they absolutely did. They, hot pursuit became a very loose uh, definition. Um, but that... It did in, violate international law. However, it was also very effective because uh, insurgents didn't have the safe haven that they had once had. It limited limited their operational capability. Also violated international law. So, um, well, I mean, it's a lot like you know uh, the Taliban or Al Qaeda popping into Pakistan and, and assuming that we can't follow. Or the United States in Laos or yeah. in Cambodia. Um, you know, very few people that have. Uh, have fought a war where an enemy has safe haven, have stuck to the the, the rules. All the way back to Pancho Villa and everything at the turn of the century. That's yep. right. Yep. Um, but their, their, their point was to buy time, for the, and they, they successfully did that. I mean, the idea to buy time for a democratic political process to take place. They did. Um, so they bought time in South Africa, especially, because when... Um, any of these individuals were killed. It was either a volunteer from Namibia, a former terrorist, or a police officer. And when you see a headline that says South African police officer so-and-so has been killed, it really doesn't matter where they've been killed because you see police officers die in, in uh, peacetime. So it becomes much less of kind of a cognitive trigger. They also bought time in Namibia, uh, or were trying to buy time in Namibia, for a political process to take place. And as we know through our own experience, it is very difficult to just impose a democracy. And Namibia had a bureaucratic structure in place. They had um, a, a functioning state at the time. So you think it would have been less difficult. 
but even then, it still was a lengthy process that really didn't end until the South Africans uh, made it, or until it became an independent state. I don't want to say South Africans made it. That's not fair to the Namibians. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, they, they were attempting to buy time on all sides and really interrupt uh, SWAPO's ability to operate along the border region. We'll have more of Jack in a moment, but let me take a minute to tell you about Movement Watches. Movement Watches, spelled M-V-M-T but pronounced movement, was founded on the belief that style shouldn't break the bank. The watchmaker's goal is to change the way consumers think about fashion by offering high-quality minimalist products at revolutionary prices. With over 1 million watches sold to customers in 160-plus countries around the world, Movement Watches has solidified itself as the world's fastest-growing watch company. Look, the story of this company's beginning is pretty amazing. And as someone who has worked to use word of mouth and social media to build SpyCast brand, I really took to this story. In 2013, two watch enthusiasts dropped out of college with the dream of reinventing the watch industry. Now, I'm not one to advocate this. Stay in school, kids. But being tired of big brand markups, the duo set out to create a direct-to-consumer model. Due to enormous fan support, they became the second-highest crowdfunded fashion brand in 2013, through the amazing engagement of their fans, they've established a growing community on social media, amassing over 1.5 million followers. And since 2013, they've really come far. The watches are gorgeous, and now both men's and women's watches. I told you this before, but when I went on their website to check out their watches, a huge argument broke out in my office about which one looked the best. And even though I eventually would choose a single watch, there were so many that I would love to have. And the great part is, if I want another one, I can afford it. This movement watches started just $95. At a department store, you're looking at $400 to $500 for a watch of this quality. Movement figured out that by selling online, they were able to cut out the middleman in retail markup, providing the best possible price. Classic design, quality construction, and stylized minimalism. And again, over 1 million watches sold in over 160 countries. So get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to movement.com slash spycast. That's mvmt.com slash spycast. The watch I have is a really clean design. Seriously, I've been getting compliments ever since I put it on. So now is the time to step up your watch game. Go to movement.com slash spycast. Join the movement. Let me ask you about the 32 Battalion. Because while I was reading this, I was really bringing back kind of there's great analogies here I think to the OSS and SOE of World War II essentially a special operations force uh, that's that's going old school I mean this is you know operating behind enemy lines using enemy equipment enemy uniforms enemy food everything else um, you talk a little bit about these guys because they, they seem to have some overlap with the Kofoot but not necessarily doing the same kind of tactics so I will make the pop culture connection. Uh, if you've ever seen the movie Blood Diamond with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, he was supposedly a former 3-2 battalion, uh, either trooper officer. I can never quite get uh, what his rank was. So he's got a, the Buffalo Battalion tattoo on his shoulder, you can see. Uh, so hopefully that means people pay attention. 3-2 uh, battalion was designed by a guy named Colonel Jan Bretenbach, who fought in Mozambique, Angola, Namibia, um, he fought all over the place and was this very, uh, he was a smart heretic to steal a phrase from a former professor of mine, um, because he was very good at what he did, but he was bad at playing politics. So kind of made him an interesting military officer and his concept when he looked at, uh, the border region and inside, uh, Angola, they had a couple of problems. One freedom of movement for South Africans, not so good. Second, 
um, there was an ally force, UNITA, which was run by a guy named Jonas Savimbi, uh, who was part of the po- almost part of the political process. He didn't uh, die until 2004, 2005. Um, this group was kind of the proxy of the South Africans, and they weren't doing so hot. Uh, they had been taking losses and really needed some support. So uh, Jan came up with the idea that he was going to out-guerrilla the guerrillas. That's his, his quote from his book. Um, and what he did was he took former captured insurgents and said, listen, you can rot in jail for the, what's probably going to be the rest of your life, or you can fight for me. I will train you, equip you, feed you, uh, support you, pay you, uh, take care of your families, and um, you can give your expertise to us. And they had a fairly high success rate when you think about it, especially because these were not religiously driven people. These were uh, driven by the ideal of communism, and that tended to evaporate a little faster than religion did. Um, for whatever reason, I'd make no social science uh, <laughs> ideas not, about that. Let's not go there. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so at the end of the day, they became incredibly effective because they wore, as you said, wore enemy uniforms, used enemy weapons, had enemy expertise, ate enemy rations, and would operate on foot, unsupported, inside Angola. And one of the more interesting techniques was to find an enemy encampment, uh, close with, attack it, and then... Uh, where possible, they would remove every body, bullet casing, weapon, everything they could find so that it looked like the encampment had just disappeared. And that is a very powerful psychological uh, weapon that he used because he put a a large emphasis on the psychological dimension of his war. Yeah, I mean, I think it harkens back to some of the special forces work during Vietnam where they tried to also out-guerrilla the guerrillas and and operated and, and became... Uh, units that were feared by both the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese. Um, majority of these weren't South African soldiers, as you said. I mean, that, that, that kind of the big picture idea that this is like a win-win for the, the political side of South Africa because if a bunch of them get killed, it really doesn't mean a hell of a lot. It, it really um, was another, I hate that word innovative popping up again, but a very uh, thoughtful solution to the problem they faced of keeping South African casualties limited because they they were using ex-terrorists. Now, one of the saddest outcomes of this um, is that they had some people that were very proud to fight for the South Africans and were promised a lot of things. And after um, apartheid ended uh, happily, and then after uh, the Rainbow Nation came into place in 1994, Truth and Reconciliation Commissions happened and the elections happened, you had this unit who was not well-liked by the ANC because they had done some real damage as turncoats to um, ANC friends and sometimes the ANC themselves, depending on who you ask. That's a whole other uh, bailiwick. But, um, and now they are kind of this people apart. Many of them live in South Africa in enclaves that have been provided for them. Um, because the military force ended up professionalizing quite a bit. People apart. That sounds an awful lot like that word apartheid. <laughs> it, it, yes, it does. Uh, I, <laughs> well, I mean, have, you can see how like this, this. There's so much politics wrapped up in this. It's not just the fact that it was during the time of apartheid or that it was a Cold War, but even now, getting this history right, there's still a lot of politics involved in it. Look, you know, looking back at who was screwing over who at what point. Exactly, and this issue tends to pop up every few years inside um, South Africa of 
well, here's this group of people that you promised a lot to, and they are kind of at the bottom of the barrel when it comes to who we're going to take care of. Understandably, the ANC has very few nice things to think about them, which I, I understand. Um, but that's just one of these, as you said, it's one of the facets that makes this conflict both so difficult to analyze, not because it's complex, but because it's fraught with cultural baggage. And really, that's, that's what it is, because um, the political system was so evil. And at the end, the reason that the South African state could not exist was because of that political system. Um, so it really, I try to be as objective as possible, and it's hard to. In fact, I mentioned at the end of the, the book that when you take somebody's human dignity away, it's just no. There's, there's no way that you can sustain that sort of a political system. Um, but then on the other hand, you have this 3-2 battalion group uh, that's had fought bravely on behalf of the South Africans that are uh, not well taken care of. Um, so there is nothing uncomplicated yeah. then, and there's nothing uncomplicated about it today. Well, let's try to break it down. <laughs> let's talk about lessons learned. I think, you know, I have on my cheat seat in front of me, I have lessons learned and then parenthetically or not learned. Uh, because although this is an example of a lot of this being done correctly, it doesn't seem like the United States military or even the United States historian, historical community is taking this seriously and looking at it as a potential way of figuring out. I mean, it's not like this is from the 17th century. This is going, you know, we're only a couple of decades past here. Yeah. Um, in the, from the U.S. perspective, because there is a distinct narrative to the Cold War. It is bad guys lost. This is inside on, on part of the U.S. Bad guys lost, good guys won. But then you have cases that don't really fit that model well. Vietnam is one of them, in which case we lost. The Vietnamese are still a communist country, yet one of our strongest allies in the region, right. which is a whole other issue. But there is not an overarching narrative that you can really pin in the West as to what happened. The Warsaw Pact, and especially the Cuban narrative on this, is that this was a great victory for Fidel Castro, uh, which is highly debatable. <laughs> and that this was um, the ascension of Marxism-Leninism on the African continent. So that narrative runs directly counter to our own. So just figuring out how we look at this problem is, is hard enough. Um, drawing lessons from it is even harder because to do that, you have to look at the South Africans um, and have to sort of set aside the internal political struggle, uh, which I tried very hard to do, and look at their the way they made war as a whole, um, which brings all sorts of lessons to the fore. Well, I mean, we, we kind of have to take a look at this. I mean, you talk in the book, and you're not the first person to say this, and you certainly won't be the last, of hearing people say things like counterinsurgency strategy, which, oh. it, you know, President Obama liked to say it a lot, but he's not the only one to ever say that. And, and I think for those of you out there, Half of our audience is probably going, yeah, what, that's really stupid to say. The other half's going, why is that a problem? So let's break it down. Let's assume nobody knows anything. And let's talk about tactics, operations, and strategies at a most basic level and, and why we can't talk about counterinsurgency as a strategy. If you have coffee, please start drinking it. Because, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, um, okay. To start out, I guess kind of giving the basic definitions of strategy operations and tactics um, strategy is to me and I'm sure that there are people that will take this 
and be very unhappy with it or be very happy with it. I, I'm, this is not a, an end-all, be-all definition, as no definition could hopefully capture everything that is strategy. But uh, it's a connection of ends, ways, and means to accomplish a national-level goal, uh, whatever it is. And it doesn't have to be warfare that you need a strategy right. for. It can be just about anything that needs to be accomplished at a, a for the United States purpose at greater than a state level. States can have strategies too, but um, for our purposes. And then in warfare, it is the connection of ends, ways, and means, which includes diplomatic power, economic power, uh, acquisitions, which is actually a undersold uh, component of strategy right now. How does, how does our acquisition system suit our strategy? Um, we're, it's like if you win the war and your economy collapses, your strategy sucked. Exactly. I mean that that or it was it went somewhere went bad, you know. So it's it's not just about winning the war; it's about other things too. And so, I, actually, on my way here, I was rereading a book from uh, the gentleman that actually was kind enough to write the foreword um, for mine, Lieutenant General James Dubick, published a book uh, called um, "Just War Reconsidered," and um, he has an excellent breakdown of how this whole thing works, but. He notes that if the survival of your political community is at stake and you have made the strategic decision to go to war, that that may not be a good strategic decision. That might violate the principles of just war because you have there is always going to be some risk to your political community. But if the risk is so great that it would outweigh the uh, reward of going to war, it's a pretty difficult calculation to make and probably doesn't fall in line with, with just war. Um, so yes, that was a long answer to a, a shorter question. I think the most misunderstood, I mean, tactics are relatively straightforward, right? You're a second lieutenant, you know, you get caught in an ambush. There are certain things you should do and certain things you shouldn't do. A lot, you know, you shouldn't run away, which is kind of counterintuitive, but tactics are you do other things. Running away is a good way to get everybody killed. That's basic, that's true. I think operations are the ones that, that kind of mess with everybody's head because it's like with this middle ground one where it's everything from, you know, company level operations to core level operations. Yeah. So I will give you the most unsatisfying answer in the world, but I'll talk about some of the implications of um, operations. So uh, Georgetown uh, gave me a great education, and one of the first courses you have to take is on grand strategy. And the definition that I took away from it for operations were the things that set conditions for strategic success that are at the sub strategic level. It's always great to define something with another word that you're trying to define also. It it's is. A... <laughs> um, <clears throat> to me, operations are, uh, the. Th it is not an aggregation of tactics. And the military has a big tendency to look at operations as an aggregation of tactics. That's not it. Um, it's easier to define it more as a naval uh, a component. So if you look at a naval uh, battlefield, you look at the Pacific, the operations were us setting ourselves up for the actual battles that we would fight, whether it was positioning the logistics requirements, troops, all that, to get ready for the Guadalcanal campaign, for instance, was the operational level of war. Whereas once the meat met the grinder on the beaches or uh, at the uh, Battle of Savo Island, for instance, that was where the tactics came in, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, and the strategy was how we beat the Japanese in this war. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so yeah strategic level decisions made by the president um, made by cabinet members of the military, the, the highest echelons of the military. So counterinsurgency is not a strategy. I guess that's a long and the short way of saying that we're misusing a word. There are counterinsurgency operations. There's counterinsurgency tactics. But what the, I think what your book is arguing, you can correct me if I'm wrong, with this typology of 
breaking up war and all these different ways of doing things uh, is number one problematic, but number two is probably causing us not to, not to I'm not gonna say win or lose, but not to uh, approach these wars in the right way. Yeah, if, if you were to look um, at Afghanistan, and I am not an Afghan war expert, um, but, and you were to say we are fighting a counterinsurgency war we're not fighting a counterinsurgency war in Afghanistan. We are fighting the Afghan war in Afghanistan, the U.S.-Afghan war, if that's what you want to say. Because our diplomatic relations with Pakistan are as important as how many Blackhawks we have in the country. So to say that this is a counterinsurgency strategy is a misnomer because counterinsurgency, as you said, involve operational concepts which then denote certain tactics that can be applied. Um, generally to the infantryman's upset, uh, but um, it is not an overarching strategy because an overarching strategy has to take into account economic, political support at home, um, just numerous factors that are far outside the scope of simple counterinsurgency. Uh, if I were to go down into Shake Shack downstairs and ask if anybody cared how counterinsurgency happened in Afghanistan, Few people would. They probably wouldn't really even understand what the concept meant. They would more care about the war itself, if that makes sense. Maybe that's not a good way to bring no, it down. I think it works. The Shake Shack people, they usually come straight from the spy museums. They usually know a little bit more than the average fast food restaurant customer, so they probably have a little bit of an idea what you're talking about. Well, but a lot of it's kind of focused around this broader idea of we've gotten very good. I mean, including things like Desert Storm in this. We've gotten very good at starting wars without thinking about how to end them. Or what is the kind of end game? What is the what is the acceptable result? Um, and actually, maybe Desert Storm's not fair, because we really do end that war the, the way we intended to. You know, Iraq was out of Kuwait. That was the broad goal of the war, but came back to kind of cause problems later on. But, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to think back to the last war that ended the way we wanted it to, and it was World War II, really. Yeah. I mean, maybe you could count Grenada. Uh, oh, the Navy and the Marines <laughs> love throwing Grenada at you. <laughs> you rescued some med students that needed rescuing. That's, that's right. Why can't we go to war in places yeah, like sure. Grenada anymore? Um, no, I, I think, um, and Clashwitz made this pretty clear in his book, that to think about the first step of a war without thinking what success, what strategic success, success looks like right. is folly. Starting war without thinking about how it ends is not a recipe for good war fighting. Um, and without making a political statement, it is purely military. There has not been a significant amount of thought into how does this end? Well, how the hell do you create a strategy if you don't know? Strategies are about getting to that end. Exactly. And how do you build a strategy if you don't know what the hell the end is? Now, part of this, to go back to, to operations, has to do with the fact that to us as the U.S. military, I can only speak from my limited experience in the U.S. military, that the operational level of war is very comfortable for us because, A, we're good at it. The U.S. military is fantastic at the operational level of war. And it is isolated, or we believe it to be isolated. It's not isolated. But we believe it to be isolated from the political worries or political consequences of our actions. All war, at the end of the day, is an exercise in some sort of politics. I don't want to misquote Clausewitz. I'm like, all right, Carl. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> all, I don't want to misquote, misquote dead Carl. People, you know, 
war is a continuation of politics with other means or by other means. I'm not going to get into that particular debate. But at the end of the day, war is a political exercise. Right. And the, the military, to us, just the word politics is uncomfortable. And you know what? Politics is also hard to define. And success, measuring success, is not easy. Success may not even be apparent until the war is over. Well, I think one of the interesting things, you can get people on both sides of that argument saying that the civil-military relationship is skewed toward the civilian side or it's skewed toward the military side. But I think everyone, if they take a deep look at it, will agree that it's messed up regardless of which way you think it's skewed, that we need more dialogue. There needs to be this joint, uh, too much deference to the military, again, not to get too political, uh, but when you say... You know, I'm going to listen to the generals and whatever the generals say I'm going to do, I'm going to do. No, no that, that's not, that doesn't work because the generals aren't thinking about your road building here in the United States and health care here in the United States where you have to trade off them fighting their war for your health care here in the country. And vice versa also, if a civilian-controlled military is the way our country is designed, but if the politicians in D.C. again, whether it's Donald Trump or a, a Barack Obama, who have never put a uniform on, never spent more than five minutes thinking about this at, before they became president, if they're the ones making all the decisions, they're in deep shit also. I, when's the last time, as, your, as a quasi-historian that you are, when's the last time we've had a effective civil-military dialogue? So um, I should have said this in the beginning, but my opinions are my own, not those of the Department of Defense uh, or anyone else for that matter. They are only mine. Um, But I would I like to look because I ask myself this question a lot. I like to look at Admiral King um, for this. There was King and Marshall uh, in the White House during World War Two. Logan, I want to redo that because that was loud as shit. That's okay. Okay, you can start with the Admiral King stuff. And yeah. so, when when I think about when this um, civil military relationship was highly effective, uh, Marshall and King being in the White House. Now, King, unlike the way we have the Chairman of Joint Chiefs structured right now, King was a military officer in the chain of command. Now, that was to sometimes the detriment because he was a little impetuous and had uh, could make rash decisions. But at the end of the day, the president respected him, knew where he was in the chain of command. Um, but also was more willing to take his advice on um, and have him be more of an active partner, I guess is the best way to put that. That was the last time uh, we had five-star admirals afterwards, but King was sort of the first. So, so you just had to go back 80 years, essentially, yes. to find the last time. Okay. Um, <laughs> exactly. And that, that there are probably good examples that I am missing. I just look at King as an excellent and easy example of when that relationship was very good. Now, King was not the only player. Nimitz being the operational commander out there and strategic level commander, um, there were diplomats, there were senators, and all sorts of other um, considerations that came into it. Many, many political considerations besides just military, but uh, that was an equal relationship. Whereas the chairman of the Joint Chiefs now is, this is not to, to poo-poo Goldwater Nichols, that's not what I'm doing, but the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs now is in a much more advisory role. Right. He is an advisor to the president, not a commander. Um, and while some presidents and policymakers have a tendency to view that as a more equal partner, 
sometimes presidents and policymakers can look at the chairman of the Joint Chiefs as a less equal partner. And um, I get into this a little bit at the end of the book, but the strategic decision-making process has to be more equal than it has been, at least in the past 15 years. Right. That this, the, uh, we are skewed a little bit towards the political side vice the military side. And the military side, it is very difficult for a military commander to say, hey, you're not listening to me enough, because at the end of the day, we are rightfully subservient uh, to the commander-in-chief. But that relationship has been a little mismanaged, in my opinion. Uh, Again, the opinion of Jack McCain, <laughs> not the DOD or anybody else. Yes. I think that's understood. I mean, that's why, you know, you are a relatively junior officer. Very, um, very junior officer. I, I like to be nice, <laughs> a relatively junior officer, but you've taken the time to start researching this. And, and I think that there is an advantage to talking to people like you and, and not, you know, you're not Admiral McCain. And, and you haven't had kind of the years of jaded experience to, and, and plus you're on the ground too. And I think that's one of the, the that's why, you know, Spycast, we love having former directors on, right? It's great to have a Petraeus or a Hayden, but I love having a guy who just spent a year on the ground in Afghanistan who's a junior analyst because there's a dramatically different perspective that you get from that side. Uh, and it's very easy, you know, for Jim Mattis now as Secretary of Defense and for people who are four-star generals to not understand the data. It's very easy for majors and for, you know, uh, I'm trying to, for lieutenant commanders to get to the point where they don't get the day to day. And so having that perspective, even though it's not necessarily the perspective of the DOD or the United States Navy, uh, it's good to have. Um, and, you know, and, and that dialogue needs to exist at a lower level also. And I think that people are so fixated on the big White House policymaking uh, that they're not necessarily understanding that, that middle level stuff that takes place too. Yeah, just like strategic thought, uh, there was an excellent article written by a guy named Colonel Wiley in the Marine Corps Gazette. I think it was either the early 90s or, or late 80s. It says, why lieutenants should study strategy. Um, and I would say very similarly, why ensigns lieutenants um, should study politics uh, and history especially, uh, because you cannot just one day take a professional military education course and then poof, all of a sudden you're a strategic thinker or you understand the political implications of the military right. where we're fighting. It takes years of practice, of thought, um, of professionalization in the military, and we have a tendency to modularize everything that you have now completed joint professional military education course one therefore you are now ready to execute the joint warfare plan um not really an effective model yeah, you're uh, ready to run for congress now that you've done <laughs> exactly <laughs> so uh i think it also takes a lot of there's a, a responsibility incumbent upon the military especially um, not just to get outside the operational level of war because we are firmly rooted there right now but to start thinking about the things that make us uncomfortable, like politics, um, and to, to get away from just being the technician, the, I don't want to bag on STEM here, that's also not what I'm doing, but science, technology, engineering, mathematics is fantastic at a technical level, but at some point you are going to move outside of the role of technician 
And you have to start being able to think strategically, historically, politically with perspective. Yeah, liberal arts. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Plug for liberal arts. We uh, should have just started this off with like a list of caveats. So like, I'm not, I'm not saying good things about Nazis or apartheid or any, yeah. So I think we're covered. Um, <laughs> you actually make an interesting distinction in the book that that military officers need to understand politics while still staying apolitical. It's not, it's not being a Democrat or Republican, but it's understanding how politics matter. Yes, and this is a line that is very blurry, especially today. Um, social media has not fundamentally changed our world, and again, in my opinion, but it has added the capability for voice, which is excellent, but a lot of drawback for us in the military because the respect of the military uh, it is the most highly respected profession in the United States, stems from us requiring ourselves to be apolitical in speech and action. If we are to, and where the distinction does not get drawn is the difference between partisanship and politics. Yeah. Having a keen understanding of politics is, I would say, one of the most important things to any military officer. Partisan speech is not. And what that does is it undermines our credibility and turns us into the tool of a political party, political organization, whatever right. it is. Um, and that is a recipe for disaster, uh, in a, especially in a democracy. When we are a tool of a party, we can no longer be trusted. On that wonderful note, um, let me shift focus very quickly because uh, you were uh, associated with an organization until very recently um, that I found was really interesting. And, and one of the reasons I wanted to have you on here as a great uh, kind of supplement to the uh, what you wrote in your book. Uh, and I'm always looking for ways that intelligence techniques and, and tactics are brought down to a level that's not normally associated with the intelligence world, to NGOs, to international organizations. And you were involved with an organization called Global Eye, uh, which used intelligence techniques to track trafficking. Um, you talk a little bit about their mission and, and, and what, we, what you did as an involvement in their mission. And, and I think, again, listeners, as you hear this, you're gonna, it's going to sound a whole hell of a lot like what agencies are doing in the formalized intelligence world also. So um, wildlife, timber, human, and resource trafficking are a significantly larger scourge than um, we would give them credit to. They fund nefarious organizations they're multi-billion dollar industries uh rhino horn is still one of the most if not the most expensive uh items per weight on earth so um this is not a small problem that doesn't deserve thought and the fact human trafficking uh modern slavery not to put a too fine a point on it but it is um and so uh i i wanted to get involved at some level because having been on the african continent um Several times in my life, I have seen these things uh, in action. And so I, uh, through sheer chance, uh, met the founder, uh, a guy named Firkra Kearney. Uh, it's a very hard name to pronounce. Um, who is a dedicated uh, former Australian uh, Special Forces uh, clearance diver. And um, he was born in Africa, kind of grew up all over. He's an Australian citizen. But um, he had a very keen understanding of how intelligence works, how intelligence networks work. And so he started to build his own. He uses, uh, I, I can't give away too much proprietary information, right. I can't talk about specific operations as, as they would uh, coin them, but 
um, uses local informants, local intelligence networks, um, just shoe leather information gathering, whether it's personal or, or through these intelligence networks, um, to aggregate information on uh, whether it's a whole trafficking network, an individual trafficker. Um, there are all sorts of real tangible groups that they get involved with because their concept was not to go after just one or two traffickers. There are some organizations who literally hunt down poachers, as I think there was a TV show about mm -hmm. it not long ago. But in between the financiers, which are really hard to get at because generally they're, um, they're in another country or powerful individuals, but where you could really make it hurt um, is to go after the middle managers and the networks that go from supply to demand. Um, and that's where he has really focused is to attack those networks. Now, he doesn't do anything that's illegal. He gathers information and takes it to prosecutors or to law enforcement mm -hmm. that they believe are, are willing to take the step because they, these are incredibly under-resourced agencies. You know, these law enforcement, if it's a, a local African nation or, or something like they don't have the resources to kind of do this work. And, you know, this is an organization that's bringing international-level, you know, expertise to someone in some small region within an African nation. And what's so um, interesting about it, I, I like tangible impact, first of all, but I also like the way they use money. Um, because it is there is no overhead. They don't pay for parties to recruit to uh, um, get money or anything like that. They are fiercely operationally focused, and that comes a lot from from the founder Fierkra. Um But they have gone after networks in Africa, West Africa, East Africa, and and Southern Africa. They have gone after networks in Southeast Asia, uh, and their new newer focus has been timber trafficking because uh, it has grown exponentially in the last few years and you're starting to get to uh, an environmental tipping point where um, you, you're not going to be able to replace these forests that are being cut down and the resources are going to either corrupt officials in government or in some cases uh, they have been able to tie things like ivory and rhino horn poaching to actual terrorist groups. Well, and I think that's where, you know, some of the audience may be going, why do I care about this tree hugging, you know, rhino horn and timber? <laughs> I mean, the human trafficking stuff is pretty obvious. But the others, you just kind of hinted at the key here is that these are countries when you're doing trafficking and, and smuggling, they're not getting the tax dollars that is helping the country survive. The money is going straight to terrorists. This is uh, where, where organized crime is able to flourish in these areas. In organized crime, look, what's the big deal about moonshining alcohol back in the 1920s in the United States? We're just making everybody happy. Well, that's where the damn, that's the mafia, right? I mean, these are organized crime syndicates that are popping up to trade things that we don't think are that big of a deal, but surrounding it is government corruption and other things. I mean, some of these governments are corrupt beyond corrupt. Mm -hmm. And that's a very good analogy. When we think of bootleggers in the U.S., we can associate it with the Tommy gun. That is the exact same thing that is going on in uh areas especially in east africa there's some notable groups we are fighting there but this is a lucrative trade and it doesn't involve the same networks as drug trafficking does because there are already established systems um, of drug drug trafficking 
but these are not large cartels in in large part these are not huge cartels that are trafficking things these are smaller middle, middle manager networks on continent that are doing it um, so not only is there a huge amount of impact to be had but the money interdicted because of these operations can fund not just government corruption but all sorts of other nefarious whether it's terrorist or criminal acts um, things that undermine the stability of nations. Well, and that's, the, you know, think about failed states being the, the breeding grounds of terrorism. I mean, and Somalia is a great example. I mean, that's, you have these countries that are just hanging on by their fingernails trying to build themselves into something that's stable, and they're being brought down or at least weakened extraordinarily by this corruption and, and some of these elements there. And if they collapse, then it will matter to you because that's where the United States military will end up in five or ten years. Um, so globalize the organization. You can you can Google it and find out something. There's a lot of really good information on the website that you don't even have to tell us about because it, a lot of it is there. And, and it, perhaps you can see if you're in a position to get involved, see what's going on there. Again, we'd like to thank Movement Watches for continuing to support the SpyCast family. Remember, you can get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to movement.com slash spycast. That's mvmt.com slash spycast. And the book itself that we've been talking about for the last hour is called Angola, Clausewitz, and the American Way of War. The author is Jack McCain. Jack, thank you for taking the time to talk to us today on SpyCast. Thank you, really, for uh, letting me be here and listening to my, uh, my crazy thoughts. We love crazy thoughts. Thanks again. Thank you for joining us on SpyCast. Every Tuesday, we'll give you the most interesting conversations with some of the most intriguing people in the world of intelligence. If you'd like to send us a comment or suggestion, you can email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Or tweet us at intlspycast. That's I-N-T-L-S-P-Y-C-A-S-T. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to share your feedback now.